Good morning. You guys are so much more awake than the 9 a.m. crowd. It's, it's not even funny. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to take a look into our Isaiah text. So I'd encourage you to have two things with you. In one hand, your Bible. And in the other hand, uh, I printed this up this morning. It's nothing fancy, but it is the outline of our text this morning. And I think your ushers even placed it uh, inside your bulletin. So look for this. Um, they make me look good. I printed that this morning, but they inserted it into the bulletin. Um, and so our lectionary text is Isaiah chapter 64. And in order to talk about 64, we really need to look at 63 and 64. Because if we just look at 64, it's like we're looking in on the back half of a conversation. And so in order to understand what's going on, we're going to take a look at both of those. Now, if you were listening to the readings this morning, you might be thinking to yourself, I thought this was the first Sunday of Advent. Why are they, all these things about confession and judgment and wrath and, you know, the sun and moon going dark in the gospel? It's like, good heavens, did they just mess up this week or what? <laughs> and, uh, and that was my concern for several weeks, actually. But we actually will see a shadow of Advent here in Isaiah at the very end. So I promise you that. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about confession. That's what today's text is about. That's what today's sermon is about. And before we do that, I'm going to take a quick survey here. Uh, you can raise your hand if you want, as it sounds familiar. But have you ever been in the middle of an argument, and you realize halfway through the argument, oh no, I'm on the wrong side of this argument? <laughs> or in other words, how many of you are married? <laughs> this, I'm only engaged, and I feel that all the time. And... Uh, and so, I mean, but that's a real question. That's what do you do in that situation? And there's really only two things you can do. Uh, you can try to do what I do, which is I always try to shift the argument to another topic where I'm right <laughs> and make it about something else. Or you can admit that you're wrong and the other person is right. Now, how many people, is, that's their favorite option? You know what? I'm just wrong. Now, see, there's wisdom in this congregation because uh, that is not the intuitive response. That's not what we fall to. And uh, then we can resent people and become angry at them for being right. Uh, as J.K. Rowling said in one of her Harry Potter books, she said it's much easier to forgive someone for being wrong than it is to forgive them for being right. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a while. But it, in reality, it is difficult for us to admit when we're wrong, especially to another person, and then even more so to God. You know, if it's, that much, if it's that difficult to say you're wrong to the person you have to look in the eyes every day, how much harder is it to say you're wrong to an almighty and perfect God? And so I think this feeling that we have is similar to how Israel felt uh, time and time again, especially in this morning's text. And so I'm going to talk about some things here. And so this is, I'm taking a, a leap with the text, and I want you to understand what I'm doing here. I'm going to describe their situation. I'm going to talk about where they're coming from, where they're at, and what this text is addressing. But I'm going to say the word they to refer to them. But I think you can safely substitute the word we every time you hear they. Because this is God speaking to his people. And New Covenant, we are his people. And in a sense, we, we have similarities in our relationship with God from this morning's text uh, and the people of Israel. Obviously, our circumstances are different. But there's a general sense of continuity here. And so these people... 
would frequently encounter problems, and they would turn to God with a lot of questions and frustrations. Uh, When bad things happen, they would start to question God's character. They would wonder why he isn't very helpful. And part of what happened leading up to this moment uh, in today's text is that they failed to remember their history correctly. They look back at, at the history with the sweet lens of nostalgia. You know, everything's right, I'm right, uh, things have gone well, I've been holding up my end of this relationship. But once they looked, and we see this in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 10 through 14, and here it is on the outline, Israel's rebelliousness in the time of Moses, they start to, you know, if you talk to someone in the Old Testament times or even in the time that Jesus was ministering, and you asked an Israelite, you said, what is the golden age of your people's history? They would say, the time after Moses. Uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, you know, after wandering in the desert, you land in the promised land. That's our people's golden age. And this morning's text says, even in the golden age, we weren't always quite right. This golden group of people that came out of Egypt, and you know, they made a calf, and they did all these things, and then and then after they're in the promised land, you've got the book of Judges, and it's just over and over and over again. They, they get in a good situation, they get ungrateful, they act up, then they complain about how bad their situation is. God restores them, and they have faith again, and then over and over and over again. And this is a cycle that's recurring in Judges, but it's also reoccurring in the Old Testament. And guess what? It still happens to us as a people and as, as, as individual people. We still go through periods of ungratefulness, and then we call out to God and we say, God, where are you? It's like, I abandoned you, I wasn't faithful to you, but now I don't see you in my life because I was ignoring you, and now I'm mad at you for not being here. And in a sense, that's what happens. And they come to this painful realization in chapter 63. They look backwards and they realize that it's God who has been faithful to them and their ancestors time and time again, and it is they who have been wrong. Historically, God has been faithful and reliable. And so the question they start to ask themselves is, might it be more likely that the problem is on our end? Right? That's your only problem left. See, this is where that idea is coming in. They, they're complaining about their situation. You know, our crops aren't growing. Our enemies are conquering us. This, this, and this. And then they think all these problems are God's fault. And then they start to realize, oh, maybe, uh, maybe we've got some fault in here. Maybe we've got more than some. And so they become brutally honest here in Isaiah. And so I guess another way to phrase this is that they do not properly account for their own sin. A lot of times uh, when we're upset with someone or we want to have a good argument, it's very necessary for us to conveniently overlook our own flaws. That's the best way to win an argument. But in chapter 64, verses 5 through 7 here, that's labeled the confession of sin. We just heard it. I'm going to read it again because this is a brutally honest self-assessment. If you can read this statement with meaning, it will change your life. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All, not some. We've all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Not our wicked deeds. Even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And that phrase polluted garment is a very foul idiomatic statement in the Hebrew language that I'm not going to say from the pulpit because it's not appropriate. And, uh, but you can, you can look that up in a good study Bible or something like that. He's saying, they're disgusting to you. Like, our righteousness, our best efforts are still so far beneath God's standard. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take a hold of you. And for you have hidden your face from us 
and you have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. Now, what, what does that do to a person or a group of people to be able to honestly speak like that about your own condition? It's life-changing, and we'll see that today. And so, if you only take one thing away from today's sermon, the idea here is that true confession, deep confession, honest confession, it unlocks healing and restoration and reconciliation. In confession, we have to come to terms with who we really are and with who God really is. And when we don't confess what is on our minds, we end up carrying around a burden of guilt that will lead one of two directions. Either you carry around this guilt and it will lead you to shame and despair, or you'll have to feel like you have to hide your guilt and it will lead to pride and deceit. Um, and confession would be the only alternative. And so it wouldn't surprise me if most of us in the room, and certainly those outside the room, had a negative connotation with the idea of confession. Um, but it's so important for our growth as people that it's been embedded as an irreplaceable part of our weekly worship as Christians. Not just as Anglicans. Certainly in every Anglican church, we have a weekly confession. But every Christian church for 2,000 years is in the priority of confession. And so that's what we're talking about. It's that important. Uh, now, there's a powerful illustration of confession, and I was going back and forth on using this because it's, it's not a movie you want to endorse from the pulpit. It's a 2004, it was an, a quasi-independent film starring Christian Bale called The Machinist. Uh, it's rated R. I can't recommend the movie, but I will give you uh, the contents of the movie here. So Christian Bale, who some of us may know as Batman, he played Batman last, and if you don't know him as that, you'll know him as Moses, starting next month. <laughs> he's, he's in that movie. Um, so he's, you know, he's a thin guy. He played Batman. He lost 50 pounds for this role. You could see his ribs. Um, I mean, he just looked sickly. The movie opens with him in his apartment looking like this. And what, what you go on to find out is he's a man who's named Trevor. He works in a factory, and uh, he's become... Uh, totally emaciated over the last year, and he has not slept in a year. He has insomnia. So he hasn't slept in a year. He looks just awful. No one will interact with him. Uh, his coworkers stay away from him. He has no friends. Uh, and his appearance has driven all these people away. And so as the movie goes on, his insomnia wears on him more and more and more, and he starts to hallucinate and see things. Uh, and he starts having these flashbacks um, that he has no recollection of, and he's worried that he's going crazy. As it turns out, he's not going crazy. I'm saving you so much time here. It's like a 90-minute movie. <laughs> he's not crazy. But in the end of the movie, like the last 10 minutes, you find out all these flashbacks are from a year ago when he had been driving his car, and he hit a kid and killed him, and he kept driving. And he drove home, went to sleep, and in his post-traumatic stress, his trauma, he suppressed the memory of that. But he couldn't suppress the guilt of it. The guilt had been weighing on him. It had been weighing over and over again. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He looked awful. And when he realized that this is what's happened, he goes to the police station and he confesses. And as soon as he confesses, he's able to sleep. They walk him back to his cell. He lays down and says, sleep at last, and falls asleep. And that's the end of the movie. It's not a happy movie. It's not a Christian movie. It's not a Christian director. It's not a Christian uh, story, script, director, producer. I said there were no Christian actors, but technically the actor's name is Christian. 
Um, I was corrected between services on that. But this is a powerfully true message, the cleansing power of confession. Um, his life had been lost to guilt. And so uh, it, it is cleansing, it's healing, but we actually have better news than what that movie offers, right? The movie offered the power of confession, and it did it in a, in a very powerful, clear way. Uh, but Christians have more to it than that. So I have two points from this morning's text that I would like to draw your attention to. Two truths about who God is. And this, my goal in these points, and, and I think in Isaiah's points, is that it will comfort you in, in confession and it will encourage you into confession. The first is this. It says very plainly that God's love is granted to us. That should change the way we operate. Confession uh, makes us confront who we actually are based off what we've done, what we've said, what we thought. And that idea should scare you. If you're honest with yourself, if no one else than yourself, you should be honest with yourself, that should be scary to have to own up to everything you've ever said, done, or thought. And I think this is why the idea of confession is scary. But the good news is God already knows everything you could possibly confess, and he loves you anyway. And so... The good news is that God saves his people not because of their behavior, but in spite of their behavior. Which means God saves you not because you haven't messed up, but in spite of the fact that you've messed up. See how freeing that is? You're confessing to someone who already knows and already has decided to love you. The love has been granted to you. You've not earned his love. Uh, Now, earlier I said that confession unlocks healing, restoration, reconciliation. And we can confess freely to God because there is nothing we can confess that will compromise our relationship with him. In fact, just the opposite is true. Uh, The more we confess, the more we draw close to him. We demonstrate our need and reliance on God through confession. And that's good for our relationship with God. God likes that time with us. He likes our dependence on him. And so there were times in Israel's history where they they become quite distant from God, and they tried to become self-reliant, and it never really works out well for them. That's my one-sentence summary of the Old Testament. (laughs) They try things. It doesn't work. They become self-reliant. Then they cry out to God. They say, in our self-reliance, we don't see you. And God says, well, you're not meant to be self-reliant. Try this. And so over and over again, and it seems like every generation has to learn that for themselves, uh, which is why it still rings true today. So confessing their dependence on God would always bring about a good change, and that's why we are committed to it as a weekly practice. And so this is the good news from this morning's text, is that confession is good for us, mentally and spiritually. It's a chance to lay down the burdens that you are carrying, and as a Christian, it's even better than that. So... When we confess in human relationships, whether you think of when you were a child and you had to confess things to your parents, or uh, if you're in court and you have to confess things in court, you confess in order to receive your punishment. As a Christian, that punishment has already been paid. Jesus has paid our punishment. We confess, Jesus is punished, and we have a restored relationship. That's good news. Now, the second point that I'd like to call your attention to This is a really simple statement, and I think it's one that if you're in the church, if you read the Bible regularly, like me. So I read this passage probably 100 times this week, and it would probably be about the 70th time that this verse actually popped out at me. This is Isaiah uh, 63, 7. 
And he actually repeats it a couple times in here. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And uh, at the end of that section, uh, at the end of verse 7, he says, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This concept of God's steadfast love, I've just heard it so many times that it had almost worn out for me. Um, but the word steadfast, it means resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. And so this means, contrary to other opinions, the primary mode that God operates from is love. His primary disposition that he works from, that he relates to us in the world from, is loving. Now, many people don't think of God in this way, and Isaiah reminds us of this, and it's something that we always need reminding of, because sometimes our experiences in life will tempt us to think otherwise. So when the Israelites, for example, would begin to question whether God is inherently loving uh, all the time or not, uh, and things weren't going their way, they would say things like, hmm, well, we've learned that about God from our parents. You know, they told us God is steadfast in love, but we're not seeing that, we're not experiencing that. But, and, and in chapter 63 here, we have another confusing element. So this is, if think of, uh, think of yourself as not a Christian, and you pick up the Bible, and you start reading Isaiah 63, and uh, I lost my little out, oh, there it is. So Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, uh, we open with a vision of God's judgment. What kind of God does it look like we're talking about now? It looks like we're talking about a wrathful God, Right? He's wrathful and angry. This is why people, and good Christians too, and I'm not saying that you know, anyone's dumb for thinking that. It's, I mean, like if we just read it without its context, that's what it looks like. Um, so 63 starts out talking about his wrath, and I think we need to give this its proper context because I have a lot of friends, Christian and non, who read excerpts like this and don't understand what's going on. And they think God is speaking arbitrarily here, or that he's just this perennially angry figure who's just always upset, always looking for things to be upset about. Um, but what we remember is he is steadfast in love, right? His primary mode of operation is love. And so you then have to answer the question, well, how can he be wrathful if he's so full of love? And what I'll, say, what I'll tell you, this, I'll give you this this morning, is that wrath is a necessary consequence of genuine love. And so I'm going to put this in parental terms here. So as a parent, you would create rules for your children because you want your children to learn certain behaviors, certain patterns of, of behavior, certain uh, lifestyle, certain values. And anytime those things are threatened, anytime those rules are broken, good parents will feel a sense of anger. Not because they're angry parents, but because they're loving parents. When something you love is being destroyed, it should provoke your anger. And so God, in the same way, he loves all that he has created. And when he sees something destroying and tearing at the fabric of what he's created, he responds with righteous anger, which we call wrath. And so when I compared this text to being uh, wrong halfway through an argument, the people uh, in this text had started to grumble about God, complain about their lot in life. But after a little bit of honest reflection, they realized that they are the ones who are violating the relationship with God, not the other way around. And so if you were to define confession based on our text this morning, you would have to say that it's two things, and it's, they're added together, working together. The first is that it is an honest assessment of who we are, who I am, 
based on what I've done, based on what I've said, based on what I've thought, and an honest assessment of God, who he is, based on what he's done and what he's said. And when those two work together, we get confessions like, I mean, the confession that we pray every week is so beautiful. It captures both of these things. The Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And at the beginning we say we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. That's all-encompassing. And if you mean that prayer when you say it, it will change your life. Uh, and so when those things work together, we, it draws us to worship, it draws us closer to God, and it brings us healing uh, emotionally. So the people uh, in this morning's text, and I, I promised you that we'd, we'd get a little adventy just for a second. So this is just a nugget, you can have it. Um, the people in this morning's text, they live in a different point of history. They're in, uh, we are now on the other side of the cross. When we read the Bible, we can look backwards and see the cross. They are looking forward to the cross. So these people have been, God has demonstrated his love in delivering them from Egypt, giving them land, protecting them, caring for them. But they're still wanting more. They're saying, like, people know that it would take God himself coming down from heaven in order to fix all the wrongs and injustices of the world. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, I'll end on this. Um, I keep talking about what it's like to live a lifestyle changed by confession. So I want you to imagine with me, and don't worry, I'm not a creative person. So this is really easy to imagine. Um, Imagine two people. The first one uh, gets out of bed every morning, and they can't see any wrong that they've ever done. They think, I've been in the right, I am hardworking, I do this, this, and this. They overlook all their wrongs. Throughout the day, what they will notice is that people are unfair, God is unfair, and life is unfair, right? Because I'm innocent, you know, I haven't done anything, life has just beaten me up, it's not right. Now, consider a second person who gets out of bed and says, I'm a sinner, I have messed up so many times, but God is still good to me. How will that change the way that they relate to other people? How will it change the way they relate to God? And, this, and we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, right? Be as forgiving to us as we have been forgiving to other people. That's actually a dangerous prayer if you're not operating from this mode of being a confessing person who sees your own faults and is thankful for what God has done for you you will then in turn be that way with other people. So at, at one time, one stroke, it fixes, well, it, it begins to fix your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. So my challenge for you this morning is to approach confession as a regular part of your prayer life and to see it as an important part of our weekly worship. See yourself as you really are, see God for who he really is, and embrace the freedom to confess a loving and merciful God. Would you please join me in prayer?